Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. This is class number 23. My name is Doug Taylor. Thank you for joining us. Uh, tonight we're going to take a little diversion, although it's very closely connected to our study of the book of Proverbs. And I'd like to share with you some ideas from the book of Haggai. Haggai is one of the later prophets. And these ideas were shared with me by Rabbi Moskowitz uh, recently, and I found them to be so important and so compelling uh, that I wanted to share them with you. Uh, Haggai is a very short book. It's only two chapters, uh, and we'll cover the whole thing, uh, hopefully in our, our time together tonight. I do want to emphasize that these ideas were worked out by Rabbi Moskowitz uh, with his son Shmuley, uh, so the, the ideas are mixed between the two of them, uh, but this is their um, take on this, and again, I think these ideas are so important that it's worth uh, interrupting our flow of study on the book of Proverbs to, uh, to cover these. Um, in the beginning, uh, the book states uh, that in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, uh, the word of Hashem came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to uh, Zerubbabel, uh, or Zerubbabel, sometimes said in English, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, uh, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, um, saying, Thus said Hashem, Master of Legions, uh, this nation has said the time has not yet come, uh, and I'm reading from the, uh, the Art Scroll Tanakh, but I say it is the, it is the time for the Temple of Hashem to, re, to be rebuilt. Now, <clears throat> the, the introduction to this verse of this book is given to us in Rashi. Uh, he kind of tells us the story behind the book. So at that time, Darius was the king of Persia uh, after Ahasuerus. You may remember Ahasuerus from uh, the book of Esther. Now, uh, there is a midrash that says that Darius was a son of Esther. Whether that's historically true or not, we don't know. Uh, sometimes the midrash says something over because of an idea. So we're not sure whether this is historical or whether it's just intended to convey an idea, and we're not going to get into the Midrash. Now, <clears throat> in the days of the first uh, Cyrus, Zerubbabel was the leader of the Jews, and he was a descendant of King David. Uh, and uh, he and Joshua, the Kohen, went up from Babel to Jerusalem uh, with the permission of Cyrus. And they started to rebuild the temple. Uh, now, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin sent letters to Cyrus and advised him to stop the work of the temple that had begun. And so Cyrus, uh, under pressure, commanded them to quit. Uh, we're not sure what kind of pressure he was under, but the king told them to stop. So they had started rebuilding the temple, but then they stopped. Okay. And they stopped for three years during which Cyrus lived, plus another 14 years during the reign of Ahasuerus. And in the second year of Darius' his son, the prophecy came to encourage them 
to continue the work of rebuilding the temple, and they shouldn't be frightened because the enemies uh, will not be able to stop it, and God will make them successful. Okay, so that's Rashi's introduction to Haggai. Now, there are only two chapters in this book, and in the two chapters, Haggai has four prophecies. The first chapter has one prophecy, and the second chapter has three prophecies. So, Hashem says through Haggai this. He says, uh, and, and we'll, uh, <clears throat> um, I'm going to just paraphrase. He says, pay attention with your heart on your ways. You planted a lot and you brought in a little. You ate, and you were not satisfied. You drank, and you did not get drunk. You dressed, and you were not warm. You did business, and there was a hole in your purse. So said God, place your heart on your ways. And you'll notice that that phrase uh, comes up twice. He says it first in verse 5. Okay, set your heart. To consider your ways and then <clears throat> he says it again in verse 7 so he says in other words you should stop and think about your ways so what's happening here it's saying you planted but you only brought in a little <clears throat> excuse me you ate and you weren't satisfied you drank and you didn't get drunk. What is he saying? It doesn't say that they didn't have enough to eat. In other words, they weren't starving. They ate, but they weren't satisfied. And they had things to drink, but they didn't get drunk. They had clothes, but they didn't get warm. So... I mean, it's a rather odd kind of statement. It's like, you've got all this but, you've got all this but, you've got all this but. So what was missing in all of these things? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, what was missing is a certain satisfaction. Their physical needs were taken care of, but they didn't have any satisfaction from their physical needs. Now, you would think that a lot of people would notice that. I mean, if you drank and you didn't get drunk, you'd notice. If you ate and you didn't get satisfaction from eating, you'd notice. But they didn't notice. Now, insofar as God's justice is concerned, when God creates a creature, he has to create the creature so that he has his, his needs but he doesn't have to give it a feeling of satisfaction. That's a kindness of God, that he created a sense of satisfaction. So God sent them a message that they weren't satisfied. I mean, they're staying in their homes at this point in time, just being comfortable and wanting to be satisfied, when actually it was time to rebuild the temple. So God gave them a message. 
that they weren't being satisfied, and they should have started questioning that. They should have noticed, gee, we got clothes, but we're not warm. We got, you know, things to drink, but we're not drunk. We got food, but we're not satisfied. They should have started questioning, and that questioning should have led them to a certain conclusion. And this is what God, through Haggai, is condemning Israel for. They should have been able to read the facts of the situation and see what was happening to them. Okay? So that's one of the first important things, that they should have noticed what was going on around them and what was happening to them, and they should have questioned it in order to uh, understand the facts of the situation that they were in. So then Haggai tells them that they, what they should do, and they listen to him. So, okay, that seems like a good thing. I mean, the prophet comes along, tells them what to do. So what's wrong with the nation here? What's the problem? I mean, the prophet tells them what to do, and they listen. So, I mean, they were good people. So what's the condemnation that they weren't satisfied? I mean, yeah, you told us to go do it and we'll do it, you know, to, to um, uh, rebuild. So what's the problem? So it gets down to an interesting question of what is the difference if they saw this, this need to rebuild or what was going on around them or what was happening to them, what's the difference if they saw it from their own experience, which seems to be more important here, than getting it from Haggai? In other words, God is condemning them through Haggai that they should have been able to read the facts through the physical world. They should have observed that they had all their physical needs met, but they weren't getting any satisfaction. And so they should have asked, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? They should have done an analysis. <clears throat> it's like Moses when he came to the burning bush. He said, let me turn aside and see this sight, that a bush is burning and it's not being consumed. And he observed something going on in the physical world that doesn't make sense. And so... He did an analysis. Uh, he saw the bush was burning, it wasn't being consumed, and he starts questioning. I mean, as he had a scientific question, and he went to observe uh, the problem, this phenomenon. So what do we learn here? When we start having a problem in life, we should observe it, and we should start questioning what's actually going on. Now, we can't say that the people in Haggai are bad people. I mean, they kept halacha. He, he only seems to uh, condemn them for what he's discussing here. So what is it that they're missing? I mean, they could argue, well, I mean, okay, we didn't notice that we weren't getting drunk. We didn't notice that we weren't warm. Uh, we didn't notice that we weren't satisfied. So what's the big deal? I mean, you, you, we'll take care of it now. Um, <clears throat> you know, okay, so I wasn't very observant. 
in, in watching out for this stuff. So now I'll do it. So what's the problem? What's the condemnation? And again, you'll note in, in verse 7, it says, place your heart or your thoughts on your ways. In those days when they talked about heart, uh, my understanding is it meant the mind. We tend to think about heart now as kind of the seat of the emotions. But in those days when, when they talked about heart, they were talking about the mind. So what's the answer? The answer is that God wants you to make decisions based on the information, not just based on listening to it. God wants you to look at the situations that you experience in life or that you see in life and investigate those situations. And the situations should dictate how you should operate. In other words, you must place your thoughts, your, your heart, your, your attention on these things. This is the basic theme of Haggai, of the whole book. So, what was the problem that was going on in those days? It wasn't like in the destruction of the temple, you know, when there was idolatry, uh, like an idolatry thing, rather. They kept the mitzvos. Something is missing in the way that they were thinking. And that is with regard to this. You cannot wait for someone to command you to do you have to know from the facts around you, by reading the world around you, how to make decisions. It's not about listening. Yes, listening is important, but that's as a last resort. God first sent them a message through this dissatisfaction that they, you know, with regard to their clothes and their food and their drink and so forth. They couldn't read the message. Okay. So then God sent them Haggai, and what does Haggai do? He condemns them for not reading the message. <clears throat> you see, the Torah is only a help to help us read the physical world. But our responsibility is to investigate and read the physical world. The laws of nature work whether we see them or not whether we have the ability to see them, even if it's not our fault, the laws of nature and God's personal supervision are working. Now, if I can't read it, then I pay the consequences, whether it's my fault or not. It might not be my fault, but it's still happening. And so I have to learn how to read it. I have to learn how to read the circumstances around me and make decisions on that basis. And that is more important for us to learn how to do than to just obey someone by following them blindly. Okay, does this make sense so far? And Pamela, I see your note there about uh, inflation. I understand. Okay, any questions up till now? Okay, good. Now, verse 8 <clears throat> says to go up uh, to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple. Uh, I will be pleased with it and I will be honored, said Hashem. 
Um, so he says to go up and build the house, and then he repeats himself. Um, you looked for much, and there was little. You brought into the house, and it was gone. He says, what was the reason? Because my house is destroyed, and each man is running to his house. In other words, you're just taking care of your personal things, and you're not involved in the building of the temple. Now, this is a slightly different idea. There is a certain attachment to the temple, the Beis Hamikdash. The attachment to the temple is not the sacrifices, and that's part of the law, but the temple is God's home. God manifested himself in the temple. Now, that's the, the Shekhinah. When they talk about the Shekhinah, they're talking about God manifesting himself somehow. Now, in the first temple, there were miracles every day. God showed that he was there. When people prayed, the results were so fast that people could see that it was from their prayer and not just a chance happening. If we pray a prayer, and God answers us maybe five years later, we don't necessarily make the connection. Okay, he may have answered one of our prayers. He certainly hears what you say. He knows what you're saying and what you're thinking, but it's not clear how he carries out his decisions. But then there was a recognition at that time that God was really there. So in speaking to the people at that time, he's saying, you know, how could you not want to wait, to look, to desire uh, the exact situation that occurred? <clears throat> I mean, they like they tried it 19 years before. They tried building the temple, and it didn't work. Okay, so you wait for your next opportunity. But these people gave up hope. They tried building, it didn't work, and they quit. That's not the attitude. The attitude is that if you recognize the importance of the temple, that that's where the Shekhinah rests. You would be looking for situations to tell you, okay, now's the time to build. Not just go home and wait for something to happen. And so they should have been able to see that. Okay, it didn't work the first time. So we'll keep looking for opportunities and situations that indicate it's time to try again. Some type of circumstances that would indicate that. It's, we're not just going to go home and give up and wait for God to do something. That's what, what they should have done. The point here is that you're obligated to learn to read, to read the facts around you and what they're telling you. So there are two things here in the realm of thought. One is to recognize that the value comes from investigating the world around you and the situations around you, not just obeying someone. You should make your own decisions as to what your value system is, not just listen to a person. A, a teacher can open your mind to think about it, but you have to come to a decision. You shouldn't follow the teacher. Okay? The teacher worked it out his way. You have to work it out your way, in accordance with your personality, the way your mind works, how you think, and so forth. You have to work it out yourself. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you have to read circumstances. Okay? And in this case, they needed to read the circumstances and not just wait for God to do something, but they needed to read the circumstances to say, okay, now's a, now's a good time to try again and rebuild the temple. That's a, that's a proactive approach. They're watching what's happening and they see an opportunity and say, okay, let's go for it. Not just, all right, we tried it once, now we'll go home and just wait for some you know, thing to happen. So these are two different aspects of developing your thought. Okay, so verse 12 says that Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people heard the voice of God, their God, and the words of Haggai. And it says that the people feared Hashem. But that was because of Haggai, not because of their own investigation. See, they weren't thinkers. They were religious people, but they weren't thinkers. Then in verse 13, and I'm still, we're still in chapter 1, okay, it says, And Haggai, the messenger of God, going on the message to the nation, he said, I am with you. In other words, God is with you. In verse 14, Hashem arouses the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the entire nation, and they started doing the work in the house of God, their God. In verse 15, it states that this happened on the 24th day of the sixth month. And the prophecy was given on the first day of the sixth month. So this was 24 days later. Okay? Now, in chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, was the word of God in the hand of Haggai the prophet. So Haggai got a second prophecy, and it's on the 21st day of the seventh month, so this is about a month later that this second prophecy is occurring. So God says to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and the rest of the nation, he starts encouraging them. And this is the encouragement part. He says, anybody, uh, or, or, or this, I think, whole section is, is the encouragement he says, anybody that is a remnant from the last temple and the greatness of the first temple, what you will see now will not be anything compared to that. It will be so much greater. It will be no comparison to the first temple. It will be greater than the first temple. <clears throat> and he continues to give them encouragement and tells them not to be afraid. Then he still keeps going, and he says, In just a little while longer I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and I will fill this house with honor, says God. To me, I have the silver and I have the gold, and this house will be greater than the first, and I will give you peace, says God. Now, we have a practical question here. And the practical question is, how do we reconcile that the facts of history don't seem to line up with this? In other words, God is saying all this stuff's going to happen and I will give you peace. Okay? So we ask, well, gee, I mean, did we see that happen in history? Has that actually occurred? 
So Rashi says in verse 6, uh, and I will shake, in that section, says that has to do with miracles that were done through the Hashmanayim. In other words, there was one particular time during the Second Temple where the Jews really took over. So Rashi says that that period represented this prophecy. Okay? So that's his explanation. Okay. Let's move on. Now, the third prophecy is on the 24th of the ninth month of the second year of Darius. So, this is about two months later. The third and fourth prophecies happened on the same day. God says, Ask the Kohanim a question of halacha, of Torah law. He says, Let's say that a man has a sacrifice, something that is holy, in his coat, and it's dragging on the floor and it touches to bread or to porridge or any type of food, does that food become holy? Okay, now, by the way, uh, we need to understand that in this sense, holy means set apart for a specific purpose. This is a halakhic determination. It's a halakhic qualification. It's not like, oh, wow, that's so holy, like some religious fervor kind of thing. This is very, very direct halakha. Uh, the, the concept of, of what is holy or what is not. Uh, sometimes in translations, um, the terms, like, are, uh, terms are used like clean and unclean, which are unfortunate translations because they imply that something that's unclean is like icky or awful or dirty or whatever. Uh, it, it's, a it's not that. It's a halakhic classification, something that's been set aside uh, for a specific purpose. So they're asked, you know, if a man has something like that in his coat, it's dragging on the floor and it touches to bread or to porridge or any type of food, does that food become holy? And the Kohanim answered and they said, no, it doesn't. Okay? So then, uh, then he asks the second question. And, and by the way, these aren't abstract questions. I mean, this is, it may not be stuff that we deal with every day, but from a Torah halacha standpoint, this is very simple law. So in the first question, he had asked, if something holy touches regular food, does the regular food become holy? And the answer is no. The regular food doesn't become holy, it just stays regular. So Haggai then says, what if something impure touches one of these, like a piece of food or something? Would it become impure? And the Kohanim um, said, yes, it would become impure. So Haggai says, yes, so is this nation. This nation before me, the word of God, is that everything they do is impure. And then in verse 15 it says, place your heart from this day forward before you place stone on stone to make the Hechol, the holiest part of the temple. Okay? Uh, apparently they had built up everything before that. And he's telling them, before you do that, place your heart on this. Okay. 
So before we go on, we need to understand the metaphor of the question of halacha. The whole purpose of, of this was to bring out a certain idea. Now, the Malbum adds this point. He says, with regard to holiness, if the holy thing touches these food things, they don't become holy. But if they absorb from the holy thing, these things do become holy. So if a, a piece of bread, say, just got, just got lightly touched, apparently, by something, uh, then my understanding is it does not become uh, holy. But if that food absorbs something, so for example, uh, my understanding is if you had orange juice that had been uh, set aside as, as holy, and it spilled onto the bread so the bread absorbs it, okay, then uh, the bread does become holy. So he's added this one step to the verse. So let's review what's, what's being said here. If something holy touches something that isn't holy, something regular, it doesn't affect it. But if something from the holy thing is absorbed into some food of everyday life, then that everyday food becomes holy. By contrast, when we're talking about impurity, if the impure thing touches it, then it becomes impure. Okay? All right. I want to make sure we're clear on the facts here. So let me know uh, if, if you're not clear on the facts, because we want to make sure we understand what, what's happening. So what is Haggai actually telling the nation of Israel here? And Rabbi Moskowitz brought up this good example. He said, if you're sitting watching TV, and suddenly they have a food commercial, you can find yourself getting hungry. Now all you did was see it. I mean, nothing really happened, but you saw the commercial and it awakened your appetite. When it comes to everyday desires, all you have to do is see, and your desires are, awake, are awakened. You don't need to get involved. You just see, or someone tells you a story or something, and all of your desires can be awakened. However, insofar as learning is concerned, you have to put in work and you have to absorb it. It's not by contact. It's, by, it's an involvement. You have to get involved in the world of learning. Okay, This is according to the Malbum. Because as he said, if you absorb the holy thing, then the regular food becomes holy. So you have to absorb the knowledge. You have to put in work. You can't just be passive when it comes to learning. This is what he's telling the people at the time. The people at the time were good people, and they kept the Torah, they kept the law, but their heart wasn't in it. What was missing? What was missing was an involvement in the study of Torah where you put your whole being into it and you review it and you go over it until it becomes a part of you and you review again and again and you don't let it go. Okay? Then it starts to become a part of you and you absorb it. 
But with regard to the psyche, you don't need any absorption to be awakened to different desires. Your five senses will awaken you. you know, very superficially it can happen. You know, you see something luscious or maybe you just catch a whiff of a smell walking by an open restaurant or your neighbor cooking food or whatever and you know you can immediately become hungry or desire something just from a, from essentially being touched if you will so the way to come to god and this is what he's telling them is he keeps saying you are impure because you're so superficial you wait for someone to tell you you're not involved in the world of ideas now place your heart from this day forward before you continue building before you put stone on stolen stone in the hechol what's he saying here he's saying that the nature of the temple of god's house the very essence of it is such that you can't build it without recognizing the hakma, the wisdom and the ideas the whole idea of the temple is to recognize the wisdom of God and to recognize God himself and to understand God uh, and uh, the value where God manifests himself and the whole relationship between God and man. And that can only come through an investigation of knowledge and a depth of knowledge. That's the only way you can get it. And that's what the temple represents. We have to understand that he is not condemning them for goodness. He's condemning them for a certain mental laziness. They're not physical, physically lazy. I mean, they were willing to build the temple. I mean, they're sort of saying, you know, just tell me to do it and tell me what to do and I'll be glad to follow. But that's, see, that's not heart. That's not putting your heart into it. That's just waiting for someone to tell you what to do. The temple must come from your heart and the heart of Torah is knowledge and wisdom and that's what was missing here in this generation uh, this generation it, it was missing the knowledge and you have to get that knowledge and through that knowledge that's how you should relate to God and that knowledge includes both the knowledge of God the philosophy and the practical to know how to read the physical world. So it's important to understand that when we learn Proverbs, it's not just a practical book. It's part of the basic foundation of the Torah life. Uh, you have to, to read the laws of nature and interpret the laws of nature. If we don't do that, then we're lacking knowledge. Uh, and you know, God can condemn us for this. It's not just practical, but it's a, it's a relationship with God to interpret the physical world the correct way. That is part of the Torah obligation, to develop our minds as best as we can, to interpret the events around us, and to make decisions on our interpretations of those events. Okay, let me pause here and see if we have any questions okay so then in chapter 2 verse 17 um, 
It says, I had struck you with blast and blight and hail upon all your handiwork, yet you are not returning to me, the word of God. Set now your heart. Your heart, that's, that's the essence. That means the learning. Set now your heart to consider from this day and before, from the 24th of the ninth month back to the day when the foundations of the sanctuary were laid. Set your heart to consider is there any more seed in the silo? Even the grapevine and the fig tree and the pomegranate tree and the olive tree have not borne their fruit. But from this day on, I will provide blessing. So it seems like they still had this problem, but on this day, there was a change. Okay? And he says, from this day on, I will provide blessing. Now, it says that the word of God came a second time, and the second time means the second time that day, to Haggai. Uh, so again, on the 24th day of the month, and he says, now say to uh, Zerubbabel, uh, the leader, that I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will turn over the thrones of kings, and I will destroy the strength of all the kingdom of the nations, and I will turn over their chariots and their riders and their horses with the sword, and so forth. In that day, the word of God is that I will take Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, and I will place him as a seal. A seal means that he's the king, because the king places a seal on everything. Because you, I have chosen the word of God. Okay, so now we have a question. Most of the commentaries say that this part is talking about when the Messiah comes, because it didn't happen at the time of Zerubbabel. And when they talk about Zerubbabel, they mean the descendants of Zerubbabel, because Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. So it'll go down through the line of Zerubbabel. Not, not every descendant of David will be a king, uh, but that through the descendants of Zerubbabel, this will happen at the time of the Messiah when the third temple was built. Okay? So, that's what most of the commentaries say. But some people say, no, that it meant Zerubbabel literally. And the Jews didn't have that power. I mean, here it's talking about how the Jews will have total control. So the question is, how can we explain this? You understand the question? I mean, he's, they're, they're saying, okay, God is saying all these things will happen, uh, and, and Zerubbabel's going to, uh, uh, you know, I will place him as a seal, uh, like a king, uh, because you I have chosen. Okay, and let me just pause and look at the text here for one moment. Uh, yeah, and I will, uh, I will make you like my, my ring for you I have chosen. I'm reading there out of the art school. So, Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say like this. There are two types of control. There is psychological control, and there is practical control. At that time, the Jews were under kings who either didn't bother them, 
or the kings were involved in other places. So from a practical standpoint, the Jews ran their own government. Um, and practically, they ran their own government until the Second Temple was destroyed, even though they were under other kings. But psychologically, most people don't hold that that's freedom. I mean, this, the idea of psychological freedom is really wrong, because ultimately there is no real freedom. I mean, if you can do whatever you want, then what difference does it make if you're under somebody or not under somebody? In other words, let's say that someone says, you're under the control of somebody, but that person who has control over you says, you can do whatever you want. Psychologically, you're still going to feel like, well, he, con he's, he controls me. So, for example, I mean, let's say that somebody says, you can't own any money, but I will give you all your needs. Whatever you need, I'll give it to you. Okay? I submit most people uh, would not feel good about that. Psychologically, they wouldn't feel good about it, even though practically they might be better off that way. So, the psychological is a certain fake-out. The idea that I need a certain independence beyond the practical, a certain security beyond the practical. But the truth is that the only real security that a person could have is in God. There's no other real security. Practically, you can have a good thing. It's not the ultimate, but you have it. So what do you care? But it'll bother a person because you'll think, well, I have everything, but I'm not a free man or I'm not a free woman. But see, that's the psychological. And so what he's talking about here is that he's giving a message. He's saying, don't look for that fake-out type of freedom. Look for the practical type of freedom. If you have freedom, be happy with it, because ultimately it's all in God's hands anyway. And so you're never going to have the ultimate freedom anyway, because you're always under God. So it's a difference between the practical and the psychological. Uh, in other words, practically, we have to have ownership. Because if we didn't have ownership, then anybody could walk into my house and take anything they want. Practically, you can't live in that kind of a situation because then, I mean, you couldn't put anything down because people would just walk away with it. So practically, we need this idea of ownership. But philosophically, there's no such thing as ownership. I mean, philosophically, a person is here today and gone tomorrow. There's no real security in this world. One of the greatest generals of all time was Alexander, and they called him Alexander the Great. And people looked up to him like, like he was a god or something, like, like this unbelievable guy. He died at age 32. All that conquering... All that territory, whatever, it didn't protect him. 
Whatever you have in this world, it can't protect you. The only ultimate security, the ultimate protection is in God. So there's, there's only practical security. There's not real security. It's only practical. So he's telling Zerubbabel over here that you'll have freedom, all the freedom that you want. The only thing is you'll is that you'll still be under somebody, but practically you'll have your freedom. So, you see the difference? I mean, practically they could do what they needed to do, to, you know, to eat and to sleep and to have clothing and to be involved in learning. It's like, well, if you can do that, so what if you've got a king over you? What difference does it make if you have practical freedom? So when Haggai was condemning Israel, uh, he was condemning them for three things. First, they should have tried and experimented on their own to see if you know, they could possibly rebuild the temple, if, it, if their plan could work. I mean, they had tried it once before, they should have waited, seen an opportune moment, and tried again. Two, they should have seen that something very strange was happening. They should have observed the facts and, and analyzed them and noticed this dissatisfaction with regard to food and drink and business dealings and clothing and so forth. <clears throat> but instead, they didn't even notice it. They weren't trained to be observant and to recognize things around them. And then third, when they obeyed Haggai, which was a good thing, he condemns them for not doing the first two. The first thing is that they should have been prepared to try and rebuild the temple as soon as, as possible in order to get a relationship with God. I mean, as soon as they could, whenever it was possible, they should have done it in order to have the temple there in the, in the Shechem. The second thing is that if God gave them a warning, uh, you know, to help read the signs, then I should have been able to see it. Um, but if I don't see it from that, that's not a good thing. Then they're just into a realm of obeying. So then, okay, Haggai came and told me to start rebuilding, so I'll do it because Haggai told me. Well, that's, that's not good. That's because they're not doing it because they saw the events. They didn't see it through God's system. We don't know God himself. We can't know God. We can only know God through his two systems, the laws of nature and God's personal supervision. So if we don't look at his two systems, then we can't know God. And if we just obey because a prophet tells us, or because um, the Torah tells us, I mean, that's a good thing, it's a certain level, but there's something lacking. And it's lacking so much that he's saying, you can't rebuild the temple without it. There's something lacking in just obeying. It's a good thing, but, but you, you're missing a piece. So according to Haggai, every Jew has an obligation to be an independent thinker and make decisions. And I do not know of any reason why that obligation, at least philosophically, would not devolve upon the Noahide. Even when we decide to follow somebody, it ought to be done with wisdom why I'm deciding to follow this person at this time, and why this particular person. I must have some reason for doing it. I shouldn't just be a follower. 
There must be some wisdom behind it. I mean, sometimes you do have to follow someone. Like, you know, if you go in to see a doctor and he tells you to do certain things, okay, then you would follow the doctor's advice. But hopefully you didn't just open up the phone book and pick a doctor at random. Uh, I mean, there are methods of finding out whether a doctor is a good doctor or not a good doctor. Um, and you have to figure out what those methods are. So even choosing an authority has to come with wisdom. So that's what a guy is condemning the Jewish people for. And that condemnation works today. We're responsible. How much are we responsible? Well, we'll get to work and we'll find out. And as we develop our responsibility, we'll become greater. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't really have a choice. I mean, that's, that is what we need to do. And Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out, when a child is two or three years old, you might have to tell him not to go into the street or that they should look both ways before they cross. But when a person is 15 years old, you don't have to tell him that. He knows that you have to look two ways before you cross the street. It's not an authority telling him. It's reality telling him. So when you start out, reality becomes a battle with authority. So there's a conflict. Authority's telling me, and I don't want to follow authority. But if there's a development of the mind and you look at life the way Haggai is saying it, so then it's simply reality that's dictating. There's no battle against reality. You just look at reality. You look both ways before you cross the street. Or you determine that you need to go to the doctor. It's not because your parents told you that you need to go. You don't need them to tell you that anymore. I mean, if I need my parents to tell me that, you know, at, at an adult age, I'm in bad shape. So it's the same thing here. When we look at all of life through Haggai's eyes, um, that everything is either the laws of nature or God's personal supervision, if there's only those two things, then I see life through that reality and I just act. It's not like responsibility. It's like looking both ways when I cross the street. All of life is like that. So there shouldn't be a conflict. But if in those areas where you follow an authority, and it doesn't matter if it's a parent or a teacher, but if it represents not reality but an authority, then you'll have to have a conflict. Now, some people in life always accept an authority. They're what we might call submissive. And some people can't accept an authority, and we could call those people rebellious. And then there are certain people in between. Sometimes they give in, sometimes they don't. That person we could describe as healthy. He or she has a better ability to get above the situation uh, when he or she starts learning because there's nothing pulling him or her. So when you're too rebellious or too attached to society, you can't see the other side. Then it's very, very hard. But if you somehow can both listen a little bit and be a little bit rebellious, the in-between, then you can get above it and start looking at life from just reality. And that's what all of our study uh, should be about. It starts out with Proverbs and the laws of nature and everyday life. And when you start seeing it from there, even though it's not perfect, you still have to build on it. But as long as you see that your decisions are based on reality, on consequences, 
Then the next step is to go a little more abstract to God's personal supervision, which is a different system. And then so you learn that system. But once you relate to it all as reality, then there's no conflict. There's no such thing as responsibility. I just have to look two ways before I cross the street. But responsibility becomes a pain when I start out with, with uh, my responsibility coming from an authority and so I'm in conflict. And if you stay in that state where you do things because of authority, then you'll always be in conflict. Because you'll either you're, you'll accept the authority or you won't accept the authority. But it's not reality. When it's just reality, you just do it because of reality. Um, so Haggai says everybody has to become an independent thinker. Um, and a great reason for doing that is just for the happiness involved. Uh, because it, you know, it can keep you out of conflict. But it's also part of our, uh, I would say, our Torah obligation to become an independent thinker. If you don't, you can still be a good person, but that state is not what God wants. God wants you to become an independent thinker. Okay. Any questions on that? And Pamela, very good point. Questioning things is not necessarily rebellion. That's true. Um, in our societies, depending on which one you're raised in, uh, one can be sometimes get the, the message that questioning is, is considered an attack. Uh, but no, it's not necessarily, re necessarily rebellion. Uh, it helps to have enough, um, well, Rabbi Moskowitz is using the term rebellion here, but uh, an, enough uh, personal fortitude to be able to question, uh, to be willing to question. Because you need to do that in order to find out, uh, and as you say, to check things out, to find out what's really happening. A very, very important thing. Uh, a person that can't ask a question is in really, really difficult shape. Uh, so, and that's why we, we spend so much time in, in this class talking about questions, uh, because learning how to question is just uh, key. And you're right, Noahides, and I think almost all of them ended up in this because they questioned what they were into before. Uh, they were into certain areas and uh, uh, began to question, you know, what about this and why is this this way? And wait a minute, this doesn't make sense and I have a question about this. Uh, and pretty soon they find themselves uh, digging into their um, biblical roots, uh, so to speak, and that can lead them to the truth. Okay, any other questions or comments? Okay, uh, in that case, we'll stop here.